Hi everybody! During the months of March and April, we are highlighting the work of Rios to Rivers in our community effort to showcase organizations who are working towards social justice, environmental action, and more inclusive public lands. Rios to Rivers inspires the protection of rivers worldwide by investing in underserved and indigenous youth who are intimately connected to their local waters and support them in their development as the next generation of environmental stewards. Founded in 2012, Rios to Rivers programs have connected 234 underserved and indigenous students from 20 endangered river basins in seven countries. The programs have included students and community leaders from 21 indigenous nations. Rios to Rivers envisions a world in which youth who are intimately connected to their local waters and tribal communities are equipped to become the next generation of passionate leaders for healthy rivers and communities. Make monthly charitable giving a trend in your life in 2024 and help to support Rios to Rivers this March and April. Visit the link in our Instagram bio for more information. Hello and welcome to Trail Mix by Gaze at the National Parks, the podcast. I'm Dusty. And I'm Mike. If you're joining us for the first time, Trail Mix is the short format episodes of our show. While our long format episodes explore one hiking trail in one national park, one park at a time, Trail Mix allows us to dive deeper into things we didn't get to cover in our long format episodes, including interviews, history, science, and environmental justice. That's right. And this Trail Mix episode is all about the Rio Grande, or as it is known in Mexico, the Rio Bravo. So we did an episode two seasons ago, last season, about the importance of rivers. It was last season. It was, last it was season. engaging with rivers. That's there right. was an interview with Heather Fennick from the Lower Raritan Watershed Partnership. Mm-hmm. I feel like along with that, we talked a lot about New River Gorge last season because that was one of our parks and how, you know, watersheds and rivers are specifically very important in understanding the health of the environment that they're in and how being a good steward for your watershed for your river involves a lot of different things. And a watershed is an area of land that flows into a river in a specific area. Mm-hmm. So they love to describe it sort of like the drainage hole at the bottom of a bathtub. Sure. And like all the water will eventually get there. Right, right, and right. So um the land in any given area is all you know feeding into that. Feeding into that yeah. river. All of that land is considered a watershed. Right. So when we were in Big Bend National Park, we were very much so in the Rio Grande watershed. And that's exactly where the both of us experienced that river for the first time. Had you experienced Rio the Rio Grande prior to that? Yeah, only because I had been to Mexico a couple of times Okay, on a mission trip in high school. <laughs> he says with hesitation. So, yeah. um, yes. Mm-hmm. Um, yep. <laughs> I say that because like there was a lot of non-religious events that were part of that trip, or I did that trip multiple times, and that was great. And then there were definitely... The religious parts? The religious lilts, tilts of that trip as well. And that's the part that feels a little bit like, mm, yeah. do we have to, can't we just go help people? Yeah. Without like, like proselytizing? Help, exactly. Yeah. Without proselytizing. Thank you. So there it is. Yeah. So yeah. So how did you experience the Rio Grande on those trips? Well, we mainly just crossed over it because Got we it. were driving from Mississippi in a bus to the border 
over the border and into Mexico. Okay. But that was when I saw the Rio Grande for the first time. Mm-hmm. So, and I saw it in a couple of different spots. But this was the first time I'd ever like actually been close to it. And you know, somewhat like waded into it too. Somewhat waded into it. Yeah, touched yeah, the water. Yeah. So, for our purposes during this episode, we'll continue to refer to the river as the Rio Grande. The Rio Grande is an incredibly important river with a long history that predates settlers in the land that is now known as North America. The river is a lifeblood to plants, animals, and communities surrounding its riparian zones, and that's essentially the areas surrounding rivers. And the river acts as a border between the United States and Mexico. The river itself is one of the longest in North America. It spans 1,900 miles, originating in Colorado's San Juan Mountains and flowing through New Mexico and Texas before it its headwaters meet the Gulf of Mexico. As it travels through Mexico, it passes through four states, including Chihuahua, Coahuila, Nuevo León, Tamaulipas. While the river was once more resplendent, both climate change and human activity have helped to add to its demise. Currently, it is listed as one of the most endangered rivers in the world, along with the Yangtze, Ganges, Danube, and Nile, among others. And part of that is because of how the river has been broken and controlled through damming, reservoirs, and canals. In fact, it has been called the most engineered river in the world. The engineering of the river allowed for its control, the dams to alleviate catastrophic flooding when the river would become too high, the reservoirs to collect water and allow for communities to flourish and agriculture to boom. While this did wonders and ultimately benefited settlers to the region, it altered the once mighty and powerful river, a lifeblood to much more than just humans. As population boomed on both sides of the river, the Rio Grande has continued to be stressed. While climate change is also a major factor on water levels and the ultimate health of the river, human beings have left their mark in a much more physically present way as well. From drinking water to municipal needs to agriculture, it all has an impact. An impact on a myriad of species. From plants to mammals to fish, these species have relied on the river for longer than humans, but are more keenly and more quickly feeling the damages. From lynx to black bears to elk to sandhill cranes and green jays, which are birds, to alligator gar, which are fish, the species of the Rio Grande are diverse and many. With over 1,200 plant species, including cottonwood, asters, and paintbrush, the river is literally teeming with life. Life that has been a longer stakeholder in the river than human beings ever have. But the river wasn't always a place for these creatures. In fact, the river wasn't always a place at all. To understand the river and how it was formed is to understand a little bit of geology and plate tectonics. If you've listened to our trail mix episode from season four, the science of the Tetons, we take a deep dive into the way that mountains are formed. The five basic types of mountains being volcanic, fold, fault block, dome, and plateau. Understanding the way in which the Rio Grande form very much relates to plate tectonics. Essentially, a bunch of ripples occurred in the North American plate at the end of the Mesozoic era around 66 million years ago. As the Pacific plate crashed into the western edge of the North American plate, it caused the creation of the Rocky Mountains. The addition of the land known as California and a wave of volcanic eruptions through what is known as the Western United States. Then, about 20 million years ago, the North American Plate and the Pacific Plate began to move against one another. But rather than crashing into each other, creating more ripples, i.e. mountains, the Pacific Plate began to move north, 
which it is still doing to this day. This began to have a rather distressing effect on the southwest region of what is now North America, as this literally began to tear the region apart, creating parallel valleys and mountains throughout the region. Through all this change over millions of years, the Colorado Plateau, which centers on what is now the Four Corners region of the U.S., largely remained unchanged. In fact, as the Pacific Plate began to rub against the North American Plate and began to tear the region apart, the Colorado Plateau barely blinked. But the area around the plateau changed dramatically, including the area to the east. This became the Rio Grande Rift. Now, as we've talked about so many times on the show, erosion has basically sponsored most of the national parks and their landscapes. When we think about rivers, take the Colorado River, for example. That is a classic example of a river that's been working its way through rock over time through erosion. If you visit the Grand Canyon, you can imagine how much time it must have taken for the river to eat through the rock to get where it is today about 6 million years worth of time. However, when we think about the Rio Grande, this is quite the opposite. The river itself found the natural low-lying area of the Rio Grande Rift and just followed the law of path of least resistance. The rift, being made up of a series of basins and low areas, was a perfect area for water to collect and flow as it ran off from the mountains, creating the ancestral Rio Grande. This river, much wider than its modern counterpart, would have ended its flow near what is modern-day El Paso. About one to two million years ago, when the modern river began in earnest, the upper and lower Rio Grande connected, making its exit as it does now to the Gulf of Mexico. And while we can say that the river absolutely took advantage of the geology that was present, we can't totally negate the fact that over time, yes, erosion has played a part in its development. During the vast period of development of the Rio Grande and the changes to the geography and topography of the area, the flora and fauna shifted as well. And eventually, a little over 10,000 years ago, people found their way into the Rio Grande Valley. The first peoples here were hunter-gatherers. These people fall in line with Clovis culture, as the animals hunted were usually killed with distinctive points. Around the end of the last glacial period, Clovis culture developed across North America. Clovis culture refers to indigenous culture which manufactured and utilized distinctive bone and ivory tools and weapons. This was a game-changer by way of what it was to hunt big game, like mastodon, bison, and caribou. Clovis points, which is where the people and culture get their name from, have been found in abundance at a variety of sites, like New River Gorge, and gets its name from an archaeological site, Blackwater Locality Number 1, near Clovis, New Mexico, hence the designation of Clovis culture. About 9,000 years ago, as indigenous hunting tools became more refined and the southwest began to become drier as the glaciers retreated, many animals of the area went extinct via a combination of these factors. In the Archaic period, which lasted thousands of years from 7800 BCE to 250 ACE, the shift in tools brought about not only tools to hunt, but tools for cooking, like fire pits and grinding tools for seeds and grains. This is a period when early farming began to take hold and dwellings became more permanent. 
Over the next thousand years, pottery became an important craft as homes and dwellings became more advanced, just as tools that could be used for agricultural harvests, too, became more prominent and more advanced. As major drought struck the southwest region from 1275 ACE to 1300 ACE, the Rio Grande became more heavily relied upon, as people in the area without permanent sources of water settled closer and closer to the river. The river became important to agriculture as well as floodwater farming took place on the fertile edges of the Rio Grande Valley. The 1500s through the 1700s brought expeditions by Europeans and colonization of the area as the 1800s saw major changes to the southwest, specifically by way of the border, which the Rio Grande was not always. Sidestepping a lot of early U.S. history, the border of the United States, beyond that of the 13 original colonies, shifted for much of the 19th century. With the Louisiana Purchase in 1803, everything changed, and people pushed ever westward. In fact, at this point in history, a border was little more than a line on a map, as people hungry for land and opportunity took their chance in heading out west into uncharted territory. While much of the western half of the country continued to evolve via the gusto of those willing to push west, the southwest was still under Spanish dominion. That is, until 1821, when Mexico won its independence from Spain and found itself in charge of the land that is now the southwest U.S., including much of present-day Texas. As we know from history and from the current map of North America, this would all shift again. Texas became problematic for Mexico as Americans were immigrating illegally into their northern territory. Eventually, the U.S. would annex Texas. A war would be fought between these two nations, and in 1848, a treaty would be signed, ending the war and expanding the land holdings of the United States to include the Republic of Texas as a state. The country would continue to evolve through the rest of the century, and the rest of the Southwest would eventually also fall into the hands of the United States through the Gadsden Purchase in 1853. But it was in 1848 when the Rio Grande started to take shape as a major part of the southern U.S. border. As part of the rest of the Southwest continued to be added, the rest of the border would also fall into place as well. But how do you make a permanent border out of a natural feature that often shifts and changes depending on conditions? Well, for the Rio Grande, this became a problem for surveyors, as depending on the flow of the river, one side of the river may have more land than the other on any given week, month, or year. And then, quite maddeningly, it might switch back. That is exactly what happened in the late 1800s, as the river shifted and Texas gained more land than it should have. Even more of a headache to international relations than the uncontrollable shift of the river is what the people of Texas did with the new land. Unsurprisingly, like the settlers of yore, they moved into and set up community. This fluid border land became known as the Chamizal. This accidental annexation by Texans became quite a hot-button issue between the two nations until, in the 1960s, a majority of the land was returned back to Mexico. And for the people living on the Chimizal, their land was bought back by the government and they were forced to leave. While a channel was constructed to guide the course of the river, ultimately the river will do what it wants. In other parts of the country at the border, post the Mexican-American War and the Gadsden Purchase, the border was sited through both natural landscape monuments and human-made markers. Between 1849 and 1857, 52 stone obelisks were created along the border 
order from San Diego, California to Brownsville, Texas. Eventually, this number was increased to 258 from 1891 to 1894. So this was like a fascinating piece of information. I guess I never really thought about how the border was demarcated because mm-hmm. it is an incredibly long border. And also how rivers naturally shift over right. time, which would certainly make using a river as the border a problem. Yeah. I mean, when we even not even thinking about national borders, thinking about how many states have rivers Absolutely. as like part of their border edge um, yeah. or countries so across the world yeah. or countries across the world that aren't, you know, in North America. So obviously this makes for a bit of an imperfect system. Uh, yeah, obviously. You know, when it comes to, you know, border demarcation. Mm-hmm. So it's, um, yeah, I mean, the power know, of Mother Nature, the power of Mother Nature. I mean, she'll yeah. always win. It's true. Hey, everybody, we are actively planning our hiking for this year. And so you know what that means. Our moon travel guides are out and about. We're marking them up and we're writing in all of our notes. We sincerely love them and we use moon travel guides all the time. Moon is our favorite travel guidebook publisher because their authors are real people who live in and know the areas they're writing about like the back of their hand. And we can trust them from hikes to campsites to city sites to restaurants. Moon Travel has you covered. So ready to cross something off your travel bucket list in 2024? Have a lot of great ideas for trips but don't know how to get started or keep your itinerary organized? Wherever your wanderings might take you or inspire you to go, Moon Travel has you covered. Moon Travel is the travel guidebook publisher for ethical travel. Don't spend months trying to craft the perfect getaway when you can do it all with Moon. Whether you're headed out abroad, planning to take on the open road, or want to wander the trails of a national park, make sure to pack a Moon travel guide with you. And through the end of 2024, our listeners can exclusively get 20% off any Moon travel guide when you go to moon.com. Use the code GAZE24 at checkout. That's right. That is Moon. Dot com and use code GAZE24, and that's G-A-Z-E-2-4 for 20% off any Moon Travel Guide in Moon's entire library at moon.com, and that is exclusively for GAZE listeners. Hey everybody, we are actively planning our hiking for this year, and so you know what that means. Our moon travel guides are out and about, we're marking them up, and we're writing in all of our notes. We sincerely love them, and we use moon travel guides all the time. Moon is our favorite travel guidebook publisher because their authors are real people who live in and know the areas they're writing about like the back of their hand. And we can trust them from hikes to campsites to city sites to restaurants. Moon Travel has you covered. So ready to cross something off your travel bucket list in 2024? Have a lot of great ideas for trips but don't know how to get started or keep your itinerary organized? Wherever your wanderings might take you or inspire you to go, Moon Travel has you covered. Moon Travel is the travel guidebook publisher for ethical travel. Don't spend months trying to craft the perfect getaway when you can do it all with Moon. Whether you're headed out abroad, planning to take on the open road, or want to wander the trails of a national park, make sure to pack a Moon travel guide with you. And through the end of 2024, our listeners can exclusively get 20% off any Moon travel guide when you go to moon.com. Use the code GAZE24 at checkout. That's right. That is moon.com and use code GAZE24. 
And that's G-A-Z-E-2-4 for 20% off any Moon travel guide in Moon's entire library at moon.com. And that is exclusively for gays listeners. It's hard to talk about the Rio Grande without speaking about border control. The contiguous United States, bordered by two oceans, and Canada and Mexico has a robust issue with illegal crossing into the country. While the border of Canada and the United States is 5,250 miles and has about 100 legal points of land entry along the divide, the border of Mexico and the United States is considerably shorter at 1,954 miles and has about 48 legal points. Points of land entry. The quote, crisis at the border, end quote, has long been a talking point among politicians and leaders, especially those of southern states that share the border with Mexico, especially in areas where border walls have been requested, built, or partially built. While we aren't denying that illegal immigration is a problem, it's the inhumane systems put into place to curb and punish those that are morally repugnant and that give us pause. Being that a large majority of the southern border is fluid, the Rio Grande is an optimal spot for many to cross. In fact, Two of the largest areas of crossing the Rio Grande are the Rio Grande Valley and Del Rio, both in Texas. Another highly popular place for crossing is into Yuma County, Arizona. As this episode is about the Rio Grande itself, while the river sections of crossing into the U.S. remain more popular than the land routes, there is an added danger to this now buoys that bisect the river. Put in place in a flashy effort to deter migrants by Governor Greg Abbott of Texas under Operation Lone Star, an initiative at deterring migrants, these buoys present a present obstacle in crossing. This, coupled with miles of razor wire atop tall embankments on the river, have exacerbated a political firestorm surrounding migrant crossing. While these buoys began to be installed in July of 2023, as of the fall of 2023, an injunction was filed to have them removed, as neither the Army Corps of Engineers were consulted as to their construction, and necessary federal paperwork was not filed, granting permission for such a project. As these buoys create an obstruction in the nation's navigable waters, such federal permissions would have been needed to be sought ahead of time. While politics and policy plays a part in the boundaries of the state and the nation via the Rio Grande, they also play into how the river is managed, what it is used for, and how it is conserved. An organization that does a little bit of both is the IBWC, or the International Boundary and Water Commission. The primary goal of this organization, which dates to 1889, is to apply the boundary and water treaties between the United States and Mexico. This relates to boundary lines, sanitation, water quality, and flood control on the Rio Grande. With a commissioner in each country, appointed by each respective president, the work of the IBWC includes, quote, distribution between the two countries of the waters of the Rio Grande and the Colorado River, regulation and conservation of the waters of the Rio Grande for their use by the two countries by joint construction, operation, and maintenance of international storage dams and reservoirs and plants of generating hydroelectric energy at the dams, regulation of the Colorado waters allocated to Mexico, protection of the lands along the river from floods by levee and floodway projects, solution of border sanitation and other border water quality problems, preservation of the Rio Grande and the Colorado River as the international boundary, and demarcation of the land boundary. As Texas is often drought-prone, the Rio Grande, along with other 
rivers in the state and region were quickly realized for their importance, and at the turn of the 20th century, other Texas-based organizations were created to help manage the control of rivers and waters within the state. While irrigation zones were created to help manage water use and reservoirs were built to conserve available water for communities and for agriculture, this all comes back to the river being controlled for the purposes of people. And while people often try to control nature and lose, as we heard about with the issue of the border and the land known as the Camisole, the argument here is that the river has lost more than just its soul, but its own ability to self-manage, which sometimes means breaking beyond its traditional borders. The Rio Grande has had a considerable impact on the land it winds its way through, from prehistoric development and shifts to first peoples and their reliance on the river and its lifeblood to current residents, human, plant, and animal. Its waters run deep, even if only metaphorically. The river and its health, as well as the livability of the region, are all tied together now, wrapped up in a ball of climate change, politics, and allowing nature to run its course. The sources for today's episode include AmericanRivers.org, the article Getting to Know the Rio Grande More Than the Sum of Its Pieces by Carrie Halliday on Texas Water Resources Institute, Geologic History of the Rio Grande Rift by Jane Aubel, the article How the Rio Grande Came to Be by Chantal Koff-Schulz on Texas Water Resources Institute, the article A Moving Border and the History of a Difficult Boundary by Ryan Dungan on USA Today, the article Texas Order to Remove Buoys Meant to Block Migrants from Rio Grande River from The Guardian, and the article 50 Years Ago A Fluid Border Made the U.S. One Square Mile Smaller from NPR. And now let's end this trail mix with a game. All right, Mike, are you ready for today's game? I am. It's called Rio Granogram. <laughs> so I've taken Great. Rio Grande, found some other anagrammed words from these letters. Great. And do you have to guess what they are? Great. There's five. Great. Did I mention it, it was great? <laughs> it doesn't always use all the letters. Okay. Great. Great. <laughs> for 100. It's great. This is what you might be doing at a lunch counter or over an intercom from your car, or if you're a drill sergeant. What is ordering? That is correct. Okay, great. For 200, it is great. (laughs) For 200. (laughs) The act that wind and water does to rock as it passes or flows over it in the present tense. What is to erode? In the present tense. That was the perfect... um, Perfect part Infinitive, right? To erode? (laughs) <laughs> yeah that was the infinitive you said to erode so erode mm-hmm. and then the present participle eroding the noun. there we go okay. eroding okay there we go for 300 this is also a parts of speech game apparently apparently and great it's great <laughs> <laughs> for 300 this is the latin word for queen or the queen bee of the plastics who is now getting cheese fries What is Regina? That is correct. Mm -hmm. For 400, this word is a mournful song or lament from the dead sung often at funerals or by Mike before he goes to sleep. (laughs) Mournful song or lament. Of the dead. Of the dead. What is O Danny Boy? (laughs) (laughs) No. And I don't know that O Danny Boy would be considered this kind of song. Um... 
I'm trying to think of like that specific, like a like it'd be like a morning song. Does it have Correct. a? Is it that is a, that kind of song, but that ain't it. Oh, um, until it's spelled Rio Grande, we don't <laughs> have an M in that word. No, I know. I don't know. What is a dirge? Oh, that's a word that I don't use that often. But you know it. But basically, barely. But you know it. Oh, Danny boy. That's it. Mm-hmm. Okay, and finally Great. for 500. You're a dirge. As some pumpkins ripe, their bright color gets more and more saturated. So one might describe them after ripening as becoming this. Orange. Er. <laughs> Ish, yeah. Orangerish. We're going for what is orangier? Orangier. Can you believe that word That's, exists? Get out of here. That's it. Orangier. It's great. It's great. This has been great. <laughs> <laughs> It has yep. been great. Like days at the National Park. Sorry, we're getting a lot of traction out of that joke. Yeah, I know. For all. I know. I mean, it made us giggle. Mm-hmm. But yes, this has been Trail, Trail Mix. Mix by Gaze at the National Parks, the podcast. And we're here to remind you to hike early and hike often. And that adventure is always I, I great. I think you forgot the word, that great adventure. That is great adventure is always out Not there. a sponsor. <laughs> no. Gaze at the National Parks was created and is hosted by us. Dustin Ballard and Michael Ryan. To see images from this episode, follow our Instagram at gaze at the national parks. To contact us, email us at gaze at the national parks at gmail.com. And to find out more about the parks visited on this show, visit our website, gaze at the national parks.com. That's gaze, G A Z E. All original artwork featured on Instagram, on our website, and in the Gaze Shop is by me, Michael Ryan. All original music was written and performed by Dave Seaman and Mariella Klinger with Sean Sklios on guitar. Our music producer is Skylar Fortgang. This episode was edited by me, Dustin Ballard. We would also like to acknowledge that while recording this episode, that we are on the traditional and stolen lands of the Lenape people, also known as Middlesex County, New Jersey. 